0: Welcome to Health or Consequences, the healthcare and public health policy podcast under Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Paul Hattis here with my colleague, John McDonough from the T.H. Chan Harvard School of Public Health. And we're delighted today to have as our guest, Dr. Eric Dixon, president and CEO of UMass Memorial Health. Dr. Dixon is also a professor of emergency medicine at UMass Medical School. And he currently serves as the chairperson of the Massachusetts Hospital Association Board. And really Dr. Dixon is a a standout amongst his hospital health system and physician executive colleagues around the country for all the things he's been involved in and his wide ranging views. And so we're very fortunate to welcome Dr. Dixon today.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me, Paul. Good to see you, John. Perhaps, just to get things
0: started, can you tell our podcast audience a bit about your background and how you came to be the president and CEO of UMass Memorial Health?
1: Well, I, I like to say I'm I'm only a physician and I'm only the president and CEO of UMass Memorial because I am too tall to be a helicopter pilot. And <laughs> when, when I was in high school and growing up in Burlington, Massachusetts, I wanted to be a helicopter pilot in the army and I joined the army right out of high school and I had grown another inch or so and I, my seated height was too large and they said well you're already in the army so you're stuck here but you can't be a, a helicopter pilot so you have to choose another profession and um, I ended up as a as a combat medic um, which was where I found my love of medicine and then they trained me as a as a respiratory therapist and um you know, as I came out of the army, I, I went through my, my pre-med because that's what made me want to become a doctor. I actually started at UMass as a respiratory therapist, hoping to get into med school here and did get into med school and um, worked as a respiratory therapist in the hospital throughout my days in, in medical school and then did my residency in emergency medicine here, first faculty job. Here and, and basically, except for a few years at the University of Iowa, I've spent my entire career um, here. And now I'm in this dead-end job with no chance of moving up as CEO uh, for the past eight years. But I, I still, in many ways, feel like uh, you know part of the Department of Respiratory Therapy and, and, and just love my colleagues there, many of which are still here, um, which is also true of my uh, colleagues in the emergency department.
2: So the major issue we're all still dealing with is the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, We have reasons for hope in the vaccination surge. Uh, We have reasons for alarm, what's going on in Brazil and particularly now India. Um, What have been some of the biggest challenges you've faced over this past 15 months in terms of it and what are you still dealing with most intensely and most, uh, most concerned right now?
1: You know, I think the biggest challenges have shifted over time. You know, The first thing was a scarcity of resources, PPE and an ability to test um, patients for the disease. We didn't have the broad testing capabilities that we have now. Then as things got worse, it became ICU beds and hospital beds and everything associated with that. Um, but we got through the first surge um, And we saw a shift really towards recognition that um, we had a major equity issue occurring with COVID that in in our own region here in central Massachusetts, the primary issue became, we're seeing Latinx populations get infected at three times the expected rate versus a Caucasian individual. And the same is true for African-American populations. And we clearly had to deal with that and we're still dealing with that in the vaccine situation. But I would say if you said right now, what's the biggest challenge we face? It's just how tired everybody is. Like in the healthcare workforce has been through so much, so much emotionally and we're all used to working hard in the hours and we've been through residency, but we've just never seen um, death at this level right, for this period of time in our careers. And, and, and death in a way that's um, been much harder on us. You know, part of our healing as healthcare workers is, is when a patient, we lose a patient, is helping the family heal. We try to be the strength for them. There's no family members involved. And to try to do through FaceTime or Zoom, tell, tell someone that they're, you know, their mom, their dad, their son, their daughter, or husband or wife have passed away and they couldn't be there and you couldn't let them in. And that, that, that's taken, that's been worse than the amount of work and wearing the plastic gowns and the PPE that we just don't get the family interaction because of the infectious nature of this. And so I, I said to some folks the other day at a strategy retreat, we have to be thinking of the future and, what are we going to do and how are we going to recover we've got a, a backlog of people that need our care and and uh, you know some of them said and they all shook their heads is doc we're just trying to get through today we're just trying to get through today and i think that's going to play out in the next year or so and right, if you're in a ceo of a healthcare system if you're in any leadership of a, a healthcare system. Do not underestimate how tired your people are and how important your leadership in giving them hope and taking care of them is right now because that's your most important job, taking care of your people that are taking care of the patients. You
0: know, I appreciate your your sharing with us sort of the the care challenges of COVID, but we also know that there's been financial challenges uh, for a whole range of different organizations, COVID and our State Center for Health Information Analysis recently released some data that showed, for example, that your system had a negative 2% operating margin, even after receiving a little over $183 million in, in governmental uh, COVID relief funds. How are you doing now financially as, as a healthcare system?
1: And I think if you look at the history of UMass Memorial, we hover around breakeven, and that's kind of where we're at now. You know, you know we've been in existence for 23 years, and about half the time we've been in the red and about half the time we've been in the black. And that really has to do with um, serving a heavily Medicaid population, people living in poverty and therefore eligible are Medicaid and and payer mix um, uh, for us. And also having the financial burden uh, of having to support a trauma center, the only trauma center in the region, the only level three NICU, the only transplant center. And it, we were created by an act of the legislature and the legislature said you will care for the indigent populations of Central Mass. You will provide services not otherwise available and you will support the state's only public medical school. And that's core to who we are. And I've been a part of you know, the organization even going back to the UMass days before the separation occurred but what the legislature forgot is to give us instructions on how we were supposed to pay for all that and and you know each one of those three missions that was given to us um comes with a very large price tag and what it means for us is we can keep the lights on um but the kind of having dollars to invest in in new buildings and new technologies um that comes really hard to us um, and has for our entire time that we're here. And we are alone in um, having that act of the legislature that created us and and part of those missions. Other safety net providers with a high percentage of governmental payers suffer just like we do. And it's um, like I said, with the caregivers are just trying to get through today. You talk about five-year financial planning, and I just—I'm just—I'm just trying to get us through this year, um, and that's part of the the challenge of the the U.S. healthcare system overall, and certainly what we have here in Massachusetts.
2: So, so Dr. Dixon, you serve now as the chair of the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association, formerly the Mass Hospital Association, which is the voice of the hospital industry in Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts hospitals over the past year got about $1.8 billion in COVID relief funds, mostly federal. Um, what is the financial position and how is the hospital industry in Massachusetts doing right now? Did the distribution of monies make sense to you? Was it done well? Uh, what do you see in terms of looking at the industry as a whole and what it's facing and how it needs to deal with these problems moving forward?
1: Well, I think if you look at the industry as a whole, you're going to see depressed margins across the country, but it's not uniform, right? It's, as is always the case, if you look at places like Lawrence General Hospital that that cares for a very under-resourced population, Signature in Brockton, Holyoke, um, uh, ourselves... Um, You're going to see negative margins and and margins that are even more depressed from uh, from the safety net providers than you're going to see from organizations that had a better payer mix. And part of that is the way that the federal government doled out the money. And $1.8 billion is a lot of money or $180 million is a lot of money, even for a system as big as ours. But if you look at how the first and the largest bolus of dollars was given, it was given based on a percentage of net patient service revenue. So if you had high commercial rates and a high commercial percentage and low Medicaid, your worst payer, you got a lot more money on a per bed basis than the safety net providers got who had high Medicaid. And in this state on average, Medicaid pays um, less than half of what Blue Cross, Blue Sherald, your, your commercial payers. And the, and even in, in that group, there's marked differences between what some um, payers get versus others. And so if you, get, if you give out the money based on net patient service revenue, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer based on that. Now, thankfully in the second and third tranches that came through, and I I have to credit Jim McGovern and Richie Neal, two very powerful congressmen from Massachusetts that helped all of the safety nets in the country. They pushed Secretary Azar to make some of the allocation go to the safety net providers, high governmental payers, and then the hotspot money helped healthcare systems that's our disproportionate share of COVID cases and that aligned with seeing a disproportionate share of um, people of color, because they got the disease at three times the rate. So, it, hotspot money actually lined up quite well with um, safety net providers, because it was the populations that we serve that got COVID at a much higher rate. So, there was some improvement thanks to, to again those individuals that I mentioned. But you know, in in the end. When, when you look at what happens in a disaster, and I'm trained in disaster medicine as an emergency physician, the poor always do worse. They don't have any reserve. They don't have any stored food. They were just hanging on right before the tidal wave hit or the hurricane came through. And when it comes through, they don't have the reserve. Whereas people of wealth, and even moderate wealth and middle class tend to have some reserve they can get through there's cash on hand they can they have a car they can drive and get out of the disaster zone and that's really what happens to hospitals and hospitals in the same situation that you know those that were didn't have a big cash reserve and didn't have money to get through um they suffered more than than those uh, the hospitals of means and Um, And, and, you know, we'll we'll talk about Medicare for all at some point. I'm betting, John, with you on the line and with Paul here. But that's a big part of of why I'm a supporter. Before we do that,
0: though, let's let's stay on this theme of um, the market. And, you know, some institutions, just like people, have more resources available to them than others. And right now, the Department of Public Health has in front of it uh, a series of DON applications really from our, by many measures, largest and wealthiest healthcare provider system, Massachusetts General Brigham, and, and, and included in those DON applications are three new sites for ambulatory care expansion, including one in Westboro, sort of your neck of the woods in, in, in your service area. And I know there's been hearings about this. And if you listen to those hearings, I, I've tried to listen. I know there's been a lot of different folks on the line, uh, raising various issues of of concern, but let's start with your thoughts about this particular ambulatory care site expansion proposal on the part of uh, that system.
1: And I think in general, if you look at at healthcare in the state or even across the, the country, you have to make a decision as a society, if you're just gonna go free market economy, everybody can compete, everybody can set up shop wherever they want Um, or if from the government standpoint, you have to be involved in that decision about where you are allowed to put an MRI or a new clinic or a new hospital. And the reason the government stays involved in healthcare and doesn't just let us compete on the basis of value is that in the United States, we have cross subsidization of especially Medicaid with commercial um, uh, insured. And like, if we all got paid the same and we all had the same or we all had the same payer mix, you could do that, but we don't. And so what happens if you allow in any region or any state, a healthcare system to cherry pick and say, I just wanna take care of patients in the wealthiest neighborhoods with the best insurance. And they're probably best for philanthropy as well. And um, I'll just set up shop here it's always going to be at the expense of the poor and underserved because it means that those resources are gonna go preferentially to that cherry-picking system away from the system that is caring for the high Medicaid population. And, And so that's why the state has to stay involved and has a DON process. And they have to ask the question, You know, in this particular situation with Westboro, I have a lot of respect for the people at MGB, and I think they have a great, you know, world-renowned healthcare system, and I send them patients, a very small percentage of patients that they have capabilities that we don't have. Um, But if you let the most expensive, largest healthcare system in the state expand to one of the wealthiest regions of the state and neighborhoods of the state, we just hell have to go in eyes wide open and say, "Boy, that's going to have a negative effect on the healthcare systems that were cross subsidizing the care of the poor." And in Westboro, that's us. Um, you know, Do if you, you look at the,
0: that, when the state does its review, it's going to drill into the uh, economic impacts, both on the market overall and the individual providers that might be affected.
1: Yeah, I, that's what we hope. And that's what should happen with the DON process. And that's why we have a health policy commission, right? To have this independent review and to say, you know, MGB has made the claim that this is going to lower the cost of healthcare in the state. And that, oh, anybody can come to this facility. Anybody that has a car and can navigate Route 9 because it's not on a bus route, right? And, um, uh, but if you're, Living and if you're if you're non-English speaking and you you know and you're living in an under-resourced neighborhood in Worcester, can you really, really go to Westboro for care? And I and I think that it's, you know I don't blame MGB for this. It's a good strategy. They they highlighted this in their presentation um, um, and said, look at this great commercial market share here, and they want to make a bridge to. Um, uh, uh, to two of the best hospitals in the country. It gets a good strategy when you think about it. Right? Yeah, I'm sh- and, but the state has to ask the, question, ask the question, is this the best thing for Massachusetts? Is this gonna have a negative impact on other populations? Is this gonna raise the cost of care in this state or lower it as they've claimed? And I look at it and I'm biased and I say, even if I, if I ran Berkshire, and I'm way away from this and not impacted. And I look at this, I think I say, well, that's going to be bad for underserved populations and that's going to raise the cost of care in Massachusetts, which is always top five in overall cost per capita of care. So we don't have room to, to add to the cost of care overall in the state. So I think it's bad for Massachusetts, even when I try to be as unbiased as possible um, and and that the state should do a thorough, thorough Analysis of the of this transaction.
2: So to to turn that issue around a little bit, so there's there's a new conversation. It appears in the country around market concentration, monopoly generally, um, and focusing on the healthcare industry in particular. So the Mass Health Policy Commission recently cleared your system's purchase of Harrington Hospital in Southbridge. And it's a related physician group. Um, Should this transaction raise any market impact concerns? And how is this different, do you think, from the other mergers and acquisitions that have caused so much controversy and concern?
1: Well, I think the health policy took a close look and said they looked at Southbridge and they said, OK, out of 351 towns in Massachusetts, they rank 342 in terms of per capita impact. And they, what they, they probably said is, why is UMass Memorial doing this? It's one of the worst payer mix in the state, which is why Harrington has lost money for five years, six years in a row. And it's because it's about the mission, right? Like that's, you know, for Harrington to try to continue to slog along on their own with needing a new IT system Needing capital investments, needing to borrow some money, needing to meet regulatory requirements that are getting harder and harder over time. You know, it's just hard to see them making it, you know, given their payer mix. So we, we had to ask the question what's the best thing for the people in that region? And I have to admit, our board, you know, looked at the finances and said, boy, this is a tough one to support, but these are. In our primary, these people are in our primary service area, and what's the best thing for that region? And I think their board as well um, looked at it and said, geez, we'd love to stay independent. We like that flexi- flexibility, but their fiduciary obligation is to the people that live in that region. And that's why the Health Policy Commission said, boy, this isn't about gaining commercial market share and market dominance because we don't get to negotiate prices with the, either the federal or state government. Um, so the vast majority of the patients that will be cared for in, in Harrington, we don't have an ability. Market market share doesn't buy us any more clout with the payers, and they did not think this transaction would add to the overall cost of care and that would be beneficial, net beneficial to the communities uh, in that region.
2: Is there, is there any future at this point for independent, smaller independent hospitals in Massachusetts, or is it just a matter of time before they are absorbed into larger systems or close?
1: Well, it, it depends on what you mean by future in terms of duration. There are hospitals that enjoy an a excellent payer mix, um, have good uh, um, philanthropic programs um, and can hang on longer than others. Um, but ultimately it is getting so, so hard to have the infrastructure necessary to run a healthcare system, it doesn't make sense, right? You know, the, to think about what you need for an, an IT system now that is state of the art, as we especially as we start to re- add artificial intelligence to help read radiology um, and and X rays and images and things like that. The the continued subspecialization of each of the practices. Um, You just can't do it as a small hundred-bed hospital in the long term, but if you have a big reserve, then you could probably hang on longer. And that's always the case if you if you have cash, you can you can wait. But I I just you know as, as someone who oversees community hospitals, um, and and has usually gets them when they run out of cash, it's it's just a matter of time, I think. And I think the same thing is for private. Positions. None of our residents go out and start private practices. Overwhelmingly, they increase. They come in and they become employed. There are some docs that will hang on. Good friends of mine that say, "I'm just not going there in terms of the employed model," but it's inevitable in the end.
0: Eric, as we move to the final phase of our discussion with you today, we really want to broaden it because uh, you're. You're such a, a critical thinker, and I know from all the things that you've published on and, and talked about over the years. We want to give you a chance to sort of say here we are in 2021 at whatever stage of the pandemic we are now, and where we find the healthcare market and state and nationally and uh, uh, Democratic President Biden and, and uh, uh, Democratic House and Senate and our state legislature, Governor Baker. You look at all of that. Uh, what's on your mind about uh, important changes for public policy, federal or state, uh, for the healthcare uh, system in the next few years?
1: Yeah, I think at the at the state level, you know, where I look at things and I say, you Massachusetts, you know, prides itself in having one of the highest quality healthcare systems in um, in the country, in the world, and I say. There is no quality without equity, right? If we continue in this state or any other to pay half as much or less for the care of people living in poverty versus what we pay for people like myself that have good commercial uh, insurance, you will never have equity and you will never have quality without equity. And um, there is a pathway in Massachusetts to get closer to that. And what, what I have proposed and, and have um, talked to many of my colleagues that run healthcare systems across the state is doing what other states have done and to create, get your Medicaid rates up towards Medicare. And you do that through a provider tax or a provider assessment. So you tax everybody based on their commercial rates and those with the best commercial rates and that, those with the highest percentage of commercial pay more than those with very little. You give that money to Medicaid. They enjoy an excellent federal match. And they take that federal match plus the money that the healthcare systems have put in. And you work to move your Medicaid rates to Medicare. That is the first step in getting to a more equitable healthcare system. And uh, now on a national level, if I can expand to that, we need. To, why do we need fifty Medicaid programs across the United States? The reality is, most of the money is coming from uh, Medicare, anyways, for those programs through a series of special payments and the federal match, and other ways that each state has figured out how to jigger the system to get dollars in. And if if, if we if we can't have Medicare for all and I think that's a real heavy, heavy lift. Let's start to move towards that by lowering the age that people get into Medicare and and getting all of the people that we insure, self-insured UMass Memorial, that are let's say above age 63 into the Medicare program early, and we would be willing to pay um, an increased Medicare tax because we're saving money on the self-insured program And I think the employee should be willing to pay an increased Medicare tax because they aren't paying the 20% anymore to cover their own health insurance. So, you know, I'm an incrementalist, not a revolutionist. I think there is a pathway in the state of Massachusetts through the provider assessment to get Medicaid rates up towards Medicare and get some, some greater equity in this state by leveraging federal dollars wouldn't even cost the general fund anything. Well, at the same time, we can start to think at the national level of slowly increasing the Medicare tax to corporations and individuals as we slowly lower the age of uh, Medicare and ultimately with the goal of getting to Medicare for all. And as people who understand the numbers is, as you move from the 65 to 64, 63, Every year gets less expensive that you want to add, right? Because the highest, the most expensive group in Medi- um, that's not in Medicare right now is 64 to 65 and then becomes less and less expensive. If you can just start, you create a, a, a system that is achievable over the course of 10 years. You keep Medicare advan- Advantage going and, um, uh, because that uh, appears to be a very good way to, to manage the overall cost. And we can get to an equitable system in this country, the same equitable system that many other countries have with a single payer. Um, that's my dream. I'm 54, I get time to see this in my in my lifetime, maybe even in my career.
2: So, so let's just dig a little bit more deeply into that. You've turned a lot of heads all around the country by publicly endorsing a Medicare for all style framework. Uh, that position is clearly anathema to the insurance industry and others, but it's also opposed pretty strenuously by the U.S. hospital industry. They oppose Medicare for all. They oppose a public option. They oppose lowering the age of Medicare eligibility to 60 or 55. How, what do you know that they don't know? Uh, And what has been the reception to your outspokenness on this in your, interactions with hospital executives and companies all across the country?
1: Well, I, I think when I, I, I get this pushback and and I've had some, you know, stones and sticks casted at me from my from my colleagues. And I'm often surprised taking this position that I ever got elected to be um, chairman of the board for the, the Mass uh, Hospital and Healthcare Association. And then I walk them through. I say, we don't have to get rid of the insurance companies let's have it Medicare Advantage for all, right? So now I've got a few insurers that say, oh, we'll work with that. And then I then I talk about the being self-insured and I say, well, let's think about how much money your company would save if you didn't have to pay for healthcare and insurance. And would you be willing to, and well, the government can't afford it. I said, well, would you be willing to put some of that money you're gonna save now into an enhanced Medicare tax. And you start to walk them through the numbers. And then I say, then I say well, the government's way more inefficient than you know, everyone else. And I say, well, you know, how much do you think the interface between a provider and a payer costs, right? Typically it's 12, 15% of the premium goes to administrative expense on the payer side And then you're looking at 10 or 15% on the provider side for excessive documentation, denials that you're managing with, pre-authorizations. I go, what do you think the cost of that is? Maybe we can take that administrative cost and bring it down to something relatively simple, like 5%, which is probably what the combined cost is for a Medicare program. And now we have 20% that we can invest in schools, Instead of, you know, we can invest in infrastructure in this country so that we can compete in a global environment. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's like anything that you get this false information thrown out there and everybody has this immediate reaction. And our job as leaders is education. Everything I do almost here is education and start to just walk people through, let's, let's ask some quick questions and you try to lead by asking those questions. But most of the time, most of the time I'm with a somebody that's running a business and, and they're paying huge premium increases. And I say, overall, this system could be 20% less efficient, more efficient than what you have today in terms of those premium increases. Imagine if you could buy insurance at the cost of Medicare, you know, uh, it, it, like what that would do for your business, how you could deploy that capital and invest it to compete with. Japan, who costs you know forty percent of what our healthcare costs, and gets better healthcare um, as well, but you get to compete with compete with them globally. I think when you get people to the point that it is unsustainable, and then if it's it's gonna something's gonna happen, right? And then you start to talk about the equity piece. Can we really feel comfortable living in a society where, you know? women of color are getting mammography and uh, at a rate of half that of Caucasian women are getting diagnosed with cancer later because they don't have the basic health care. Uh, you know, because we everybody gets the same op- opportunity, but yet we don't create a system that works for them. You know, you want to be a part of that society? Now, you know we, we have an obligation from an equity standpoint. And from my perspective, It'll make us more competitive globally, as in, in, in terms of, um, you know, the products and services we produce. Hey, one quick question: Have I sold you? Will <laughs> you sign on to Medicare for All, Paul and John? Have I got you? Coming on the bandwagon with me?
2: I'm there. I just think that it's a incredibly difficult political lift, uh, and uh, and so the the challenge is getting from here to there is is really tough. And I respect and admire your advocacy. It's really gutsy.
1: Thank you.
0: I, I agree with what's been said about uh, the value of, of single payer. Eric, I want to just, if I could just ask you a quick question about your intriguing state idea. Have you modeled it out at all to see whether the redistribution, redistribution of dollars would help create a more uh, certain path for some of our more distressed hospitals in the state from, from the proposal that you put forward in concept.
1: Absolutely. Because it is the distressed hospitals with the lowest commercial rates and the lowest commercial percentage that would benefit the most. And I think there's a way that we could do it where you know, nobody is really hurt by this. Remember, if we pay into a provider assessment that goes to uh, Medicaid, you get a federal match on that spending. So it's better than the uh, Robin Hood steal from the rich and give to the poor. You you tax the rich, but then you get a multiple of those dollars back that gives you more to work with. And Massachusetts, you know, is a net payer into the overall uh, uh, federal government. So it's not like we're asking for something that we haven't put the money in there in the first place through our federal income taxes. And multiple other states have done this. And I I wish it was innovative and I came up with it. And wow, Eric's a genius. Eric's a copycat, right? This is an idea that's been implemented by, uh, you know, uh, Michigan, Missouri does this, California does this at a much better level. And you can get there with, you know, almost no impact to the state coffers and um, that's the best part of it for massachusetts um, now it costs the federal government money um, but we'll have to we can start to deal with that on the national level maybe this will give them the incentive they need to to start to move uh, on a medicare for all program
2: dr dixon thank you so much for this interesting and stimulating conversation congratulations on all your progress and hard work at UMass and out at, uh, in the Mass Hospital Association. And uh, thanks for being our guest today. We really appreciate it. And I'm on behalf of Paul Hattis and me, this is Health or Consequences, and we'll be back with another guest next month. Thank you.